0: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. It's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon uh, for a lecture in our series on America's founding and future. Uh, Our lecturer, very pleased to welcome, is my great friend Joseph Bottom, uh, editor of First Things, one of the nation's most influential and largest circulation uh, intellectual journals. Before moving back to New York uh, to take over the editing of First Things, uh, where uh, Mr. B- Dr. Bottom had uh, served earlier in his career, he was for several years literary editor of the Weekly Standard. Uh, a native of South Dakota, uh, Dr. Bottom is a graduate of Georgetown University with a PhD in philosophy from Boston College. His essays, poems, and reviews have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, the Wall Street Journal, 19th Century Literature, Commentary, The Washington Post, Philosophy and Literature, and The Wilson Quarterly, and many other newspapers, journals, and magazines. Uh, His books include The Fall and other uh, poems, uh, which was published by St. Augustine's Press. Dr. Bottom has been a monthly columnist for Crisis Magazine, uh, hosted for three years the nationally syndicated uh, uh, radio talk show Book Talk, and done commentary for television programs on NBC, C-SPAN, PBS, and the BBC. Our America's Founding and Future lecture series began in November of 2002 and it invites speakers to examine the American founding and fundamental principles of American democracy and political thought as they apply to current questions in social, political, legal, and uh, cultural theory. Uh, we're delighted uh, to have Dr. Bottom with us today in the series to address the theme Death and Politics. Please join me in welcoming him. Jody?
1: I'm not, I'm not sure why you're here. I, I think I would rather be at the Roger Scruton, Peter Singer debate myself. It sounds more interesting. Actually, um, I, I hope you'll forgive me or at least be gentle with me for, uh, I'm really nervous um, here today. So so nervous that I, I can barely talk. I, you people are all serious thinkers. Um, I mean, you're Princeton, professors and fellows and students, genuine intellectuals who have read everything, and and the one thing I am not is an intellectual. I'm actually like a second-rate poet who makes his living doing journalism, and you have to understand, journalism and poetry aren't intellectual vocations, they're really more like failures of character. I think. Uh, Anyway, my my friend Robbie George invited me down to talk to you, and and I'm grateful, more or less. I I hope that you'll be indulgent toward my amateurish and and very nervous attempt to circle poetically and journalistically around an idea in political theory. Um, we, We might start this way. In the midst of life, we are in death. This is a truth of human experience we might expect to resonate at every moment of public and private life, a constant touchstone for political theory, a defining circumstance for thought about the human condition. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living, as T.S. Eliot insisted. Of course, the ethical consequences of such propositions are always difficult to grasp, and I have a suspicion that something in death and politics prohibits a complete account of their relation. Nonetheless, I want to suggest two theses that political theory might find interesting. The first is this, political society derives from and depends upon the fact that people die. And the second, the deepest roots of a culture are in its funerals and memorials. Society rests on the death of men, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. once wrote. He probably intended nothing more than a sour view of the mass of humankind, that violent, childish, unpleasant crew never to be fully trusted. But it still remains a curious formulation. How could society rest on the death of men rather than being threatened or destroyed by death? The fact that death touches politics hardly needs demonstration. The human condition is to die, and politics is a means by which we jointly face that condition. We look to government to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and provide for the common sense or common defense, and we do so because through injustice, riot, and invasion, we can die. We look to government to secure our blessings to our posterity because you and I will die strands of mortality run through every fundamental political problem. Thus, for instance, politics may concern property in some essential way, but questions of property quickly raise questions of inheritance Although, actually, this should be turned the other way around. As Holmes himself once noted, the legal analysis of inheritance came first in the history of common law and definitions of property and contracts were derived from the law of inheritance. He builds nothing on this fact, but it seems to me deeply suggestive for a theory about the priority of death in our social organizations. So, too, political forms recognize death, for they are always most fragile at the moments of transferring power from one generation to another, something that Renaissance tragedy knew when, from Boccaccio to Shakespeare, it told sad stories of the death of kings. And as for the idea of political rights, we have only to note that every enumeration of such rights begins with the right to life, in the presumption that life can be taken away. We might even decide that all other rights are intelligible only by analogy to the original right to life. But mortality is a word that moves in two directions. It moves towards us in the fact that each of us must face our own death and away from us in the fact that each of us must face the death of others. And the question is, which do we seek? when we notice a connection between political life and death. Is politics involved with fear or grief? Is it concerned with how we try to avoid, prepare for, and extend our influence beyond our own death? Or how we defend, bury, and remember others? If we insist upon a universal right to life, is it because we fear that the killing of others may lead to the killing of ourselves? or because we grieve at the essential wrongness, something that cries from the ground in the killing of others. A little bit of both, no doubt. Modern liberalism long ago rejected the magical accounts of political formation that the gods themselves established Gilgamesh's city, for instance, or that the priestly anointing of Menes sanctified the pharaoh's rule in Egypt. And consequently, our explanations for the prehistoric beginnings of culture have grown a little thin. But there is a certain plausibility to the generally modern vision, in the common reading of Hobbes, for instance, of a primordial world of fear in which humans gave up certain natural freedoms in exchange for mutual civic protections against their threatened deaths. And yet, this cannot be the complete story. Since the archaeological evidence is overwhelmingly on the side of grief rather than fear. By a huge majority, the surviving remnants of early human settlements are tombs, mausoleums, graves, crypts, sepulchres, and cenotaphs. Insofar as the ancient stones speak, they seem to say that the earliest civilizations were not armed forts, but religious burial societies. Similar hints of a deep connection between the foundation of culture and the purpose of funerals, between political justice and the reaction of the living to the death of others are scattered across the ancient literary record from Gilgamesh's civilization-threatening grief for his friend Enkidu to the central place the Egyptian Book of the Dead Accords, well-treatment of corpses in its catalog of moral actions. In Greek literature, for instance, they begin with that strange scene at the end of the Odyssey in which Odysseus' last task before he can resume rule in Ithaca is to take an oar and reenact elements of Elpinor's funeral. And the uniting of politics and death reaches its peak in Euripides' claim uh, that Athens has the authority to force other Greek cities to obey universal Greek civilization in the care for the dead. You should use your power to compel the men of violence to perform this duty when they prevent the dead from receiving their share of burial and funeral rites. Aethra tells her son Theseus, the king of Athens, urging him to intervene when the city of Thebes refuses to allow burials for its defeated attackers. You should check those who would confound the funeral customs of all Hellas, for this it is that holds men's states together. Meanwhile, in Latin literature, the hints of a connection run from Lucretius's curious ending of De Rerum Natura with the cultural breakdown of funerals in a plague, and down to the appearance of funerals at every key turn as Virgil shows the struggles of Aeneas to establish a new city and bring the gods to Italy. Finally, in the Bible, the hints run from the foundation of the first city by that murderer Cain in Genesis to the ex- linking of exile tomblessness and injustice in the prophecies of Jeremiah, and from the man with an unclean spirit who dwells among the tombs in the gospel of Mark to the unburied dead that shall lie in the street of a great city in the book of Revelation. St. Augustine's brief treatise on funerals, De Cura Pro Mortuis, contains a convenient catalogue of biblical passages that mention burial, and in his analysis he relies particularly on the use of tombs, for both reward and punishment in the story of the prophets who spoke against Jeroboam in the first book of Kings. And yet, suggestive as these ancient remnants are, they lack sharp focus on the political consequences of the dead. Much clearer is the deeply disturbing notice that political theory has occasionally paid to the advantages which death offers a society. Down through the ages, practical politicians have occasionally perceived the usefulness of political murder, just as they have noticed the way in which a nation can be drawn together by war. But more revealing are the thinkers who theorize about the political necessity for internal execution or external war, who theorize for the death of other people. The conservative thinkers of the counter-enlightenment perceived the power of murder clearly. Thus, for example, Joseph de Maistre writes in his 1821 treatise on sacrifices, no nation doubted that there was a virtue in the spilling of blood. It is rooted in the furthest depths of human nature, and on this point the whole of history does not show a single dissenting voice. Similarly, Juan de Noso Cortes's 1854 essay on Catholicism, liberalism, and socialism can be read as taking the next step, not merely observing the effect of violence, but advocating such violence for its power to create social unity. Thus, this grows more explicit in, say, Carl Schmitt's proto-Nazi 1920s claim of a nation's existential ontological need for enemies to kill. And the theory of social usefulness, the social usefulness of murder, comes to full blood, oddly enough, not on the right, but on the left, in what we might call the 20th century's counter enlightenment of the left. The clearest example is probably Georges Sorel's 1908 Reflections on Violence, with its syndicalist theory of violence as a creative power by which the proletariat invents the body image of its class under the apocalyptic myth of a general strike. But Maurice Merleau-Ponty's 1947 Humanism and Terror employs much the same analysis in its defense of the Moscow show trials under Stalin. Franz Fanon openly declares the psychological and social benefits of politically motivated murder in his 1961 Wretched of the Earth. As Jean-Paul Sartre wrote in his introduction to that book, shooting a European means killing two birds with one stone, doing away with an oppressor and oppressed at one and the same time. There remain a dead man and a free man. Another way to suggest the dependence of political life on death, and perhaps the, shorter, the sharpest, although hardly the most intuitive, is to consider the logical consequences of our claims to freedom of the will, particularly the conclusion that our possession of free will requires the death of things other than itself, than ourselves. Um, this is the sort of thing that, that should be written by people here in the Princeton Philosophy Department with modal logic equations on the board. I'll skip you that. Uh, Like most such arguments in modal logic, the proof is more awkward to express in ordinary language than it is difficult or long. It goes something like this. If we have freedom, then the future must be open to various possibilities, some of which we will realize and some of which we will not. And at least a few of those unrealized possibilities must be gone from us forever. This demands, however, the reality of what Richard Taylor once called efficacious time, the relentless flow of consequential events sorting out the possibilities that succeed from the possibilities that fail. And time's efficacy can occur only through actually existing things undergoing changes. Time in virtue of itself is a cause of destruction rather than generation, as Aristotle put it. In every change, some actuality, whether substantial or accidental, must cease to be. Given, then, that free will requires the efficacy of time, and that efficacious time requires change, and that every change requires the death of something, our free will, therefore, depends upon a world in which actualities actually cease to be. Alfred North Whitehead found in John Locke a phrase to describe time. He called it perpetual perishing, and this perpetual perishing is the permanent cost of human freedom. Of course, having reached this modal logic conclusion, the question remains, what what are we to do with it? Here is a proposition that free will logically entails a world with death in it that seems to promise the deepest consequences in ethics and politics and natural theology, but any attempt to name those consequences finds them curiously vague and hard to calculate. Nonetheless, the intellectual history of ethics, particularly the abstracting moves of the Stoics, suggests that there really may be serious ethical consequences to the logical connection between free will and death. The intense morbidity of grief is deeply troubling both to grieving individuals and to those around them, a threat to private sanity and public order. And so there exists a reflection, common in antiquity, which sees in such grief a potentially avoidable source of human unhappiness. Bear up nor mourn endlessly in your heart, Achilles tells the anguished Priam in the Iliad, for there is nothing to be gained by grief. You will never bring back your son. Sooner you must go through yet another sorrow. And yet, this obviously true thought, once it's elevated to a paramount position and allowed to generate its philosophical consequences It grows oddly intrusive and disquieting. The refusal to mourn the dead seems eventually to gnaw away the reality of their dying and thus, by logical necessity, eventually to abolish the reality of our own free will. Making philosophically defensible their distaste for grief, the Roman Stoics found themselves teetering on the edge of fatalism and determinism. If you wish your children and your wife and your friends to live forever, writes Epictetus, you are foolish, for you wish things to be in your power which are not so. A serious investigation might trace this thought as it runs all the way down as if by its own momentum to Marcus Aurelius, for whom all external things, even his own actions, come to seem at last unreal, it is for our faculty of intelligence to apprehend how quickly all things vanish away, he writes, how worthless and despicable and unclean and ephemeral and dead. Time will hide everything, for the present is, for, is only a passing point in the infinity of time. Death reduces all to the same condition, what we despise equally with what we love, as well fall in love with a sparrow that flits past and in a moment is gone from our eyes. There may be similar parallels in political theory to the logical connection between free will and death. Both the sickness and the health of the human condition are writ large in political organization and through the need to control the social threat of grief, particularly in its aspect of revenge, something about the death of other people appears to touch society at its root. The attempt to seek such metaphysical foundations is shunned by political theorists who are not at the James Madison program uh, these days. There are any number of reasons for this shunning of the attempt to find metaphysical foundations, uh, beginning with the serious philosophical complexity required in order to even hint at a connection or parallel between metaphysical freedom and political liberty. So distant are they that Hobbes, for instance, dismisses any apparent relation as merely equivocation in the words freedom and liberty. John Stuart Mill argues in his 1843 System of Logic for the truth of free will as a proposition formed in the modalities of possibility and necessity, but in the very first lines of his 1859 On Liberty, he sets aside with a little bit of disdain this metaphysical question of free will to ask instead the question of civil or social liberty. Indeed, there is a steadily increasing allergy to the assertion of any ground for politics in modern times, growing until we reach finally John Rawls' insistence on a defense of contemporary liberalism that is entirely political, not metaphysical. But one might argue this modern ban against philosophical foundations leaves politics unable to account for itself, unable to admit its own attempt to address the universality of loss, and the common human experience of grief. Even in a cursory examination, our shared lives constantly betray death's traces. People have died, and thus graveyards exist, while the whole of human political theory or history can be read essentially as the long struggle to contain the blood feud of revenge. People may die, And thus, a government must weigh its role in compelling one citizen to protect another and offering what defense it can against the fragility of the body, from military regulations against desertion to workplace workplace safety rules. And finally, people will die. And thus, we try to plan ahead from the huge bulk of inheritance law to the actuarial tables used for insurance planning. And if in fact human relations are shot through with death, then much of liberalism's mistrust of metaphysics is simply mistaken. For we have discerned a genuine ground for politics that is not susceptible to the standard critiques of metaphysical claims as entirely private matters of individual preference or forms of irrational religious sentiment. Possibly we have even discovered a tool with which to dilute the caustic skepticism of much modern thought. An effort to build a politics solely around the fact of death may be a poor idea, thin sociologically and dangerous politically. The addition of rational descriptions of love, procreation, work, and the human purpose would make a fuller account of the human condition. But death is the one fact that no skeptic can dissolve, and an age of suspicion must take what it can get. The problem of how much weight to grant time's perpetual perishing is as old as modernity itself. Indeed, in a certain sense, this is the defining problem of modernity, and it resurfaces in every generation's political quarrels. Society, as Edmund Burke famously declared in 1790, is a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are not yet born. To which Thomas Paine replied just as famously in 1791, I am contending for the rights of the living and against their being willed away and controlled and contracted for by the manuscript assumed authority of the dead. In another sense, however, neither side in the modern debate has fully appreciated, I believe, the role of the dead in establishing and maintaining civil society. Death's social benefit, particularly through the family, has been taken for granted, with the result that as the dead have faded, so the reason for the argument has grown weaker with every modern generation. However much they seem at odds, the proponents of individual trumping notions of social good and the proponents of social trumping notions of individual rights share, it seems to me, a thinness of cultural analysis. The argument during the 1980s between the communitarians and the Rawlsians, for instance, essentially recapitulated the quarrel of Burke and Paine, but with less ground to stand upon and less feeling for what it is that the dead provide for us. We need a lens through which to see this more clearly, and the easiest may involve the separation of the natural order from the social. Except insofar as we are procreated beings, we do not owe to previous generations the reality of creation. The physical world is the given, the premise of our existence. Those who went before us did not make this globe and they did not bequeath the natural order to us, they merely left it. The earth belongs to the living and not to the dead, as Thomas Jefferson once insisted in a letter here comes the obligatory mention of James Madison in a letter to James Madison. As it happens, that correspondence between Jefferson and Madison was ostensibly about whether or not governments had the right to incur public debt. But the exchange between Madison and Jefferson is interesting, for it quickly turns into a question of whether public debts incurred in one generation must be paid in another and thus to the question of whether the dead can bind the living. What Madison saw is that the social world, unlike the natural, genuinely has been inherited. It is the manufactured. The social order was built, maintained, and left to us, not just by a vague and nameless antiquity, but by particular people within living memory whose serial deaths link us to the past. We receive the buildings that they built, the languages that they spoke, the books they wrote, the ideas they had, the economic opportunities they made possible, the moral consequences of the things they did, the memories they left in us, just as others will receive ours. The improvements made by the dead form a debt against the living who take the benefit of them, as Madison wrote back to Jefferson, the debt cannot be otherwise discharged than by a proportional obedience to the will of the authors of the improvements. <clears throat> we might put this question or put the question this way: Where in modern political theory is there room to weep for the dead? My father is gone from us now, and how could I ever consider this fact? arbitrary from a moral point of view, as John Rawls would have it. The raw particularity of grief makes a moral claim that must be immorally set aside by imagining our relations primarily as a matter of choice. My situation, good or bad, must include the tending of my particular parents' graves. Fair or unfair, it is mine to do. We need some way to express what is at stake politically in such grief, for even the most private mourning has public consequences. The irrationality of grievers, their exemption from normal manners, even when they do nothing more in their grief than withdraw from the public square. This is an open threat to civil society. Indeed, Sigmund Freud, in... In his astonishing essay, Mourning and Melancholia, Sigmund Freud argues that mourning is an insanity that we do not bother to treat as insane merely because we believe that it will pass. And the Stoics' endless passages against grief are always demands for faster restoration of rationality. We must anticipate by our wisdom, Cicero insists, what the passage of time is sure to bring us. Now... There is a confusion in this stoic line. The mental condition of grief may consist of irrationality, but that does not make it irrational to grieve. Still, the griever's disconnection from public rationality is real and a culture that closes off its public forms for the expression of mourning's irrationality, a society that eliminates rituals and ceremonies with at least a claimed origin in the most emotionally meaningful portions of history. This is a culture that has forgotten the hazards that those rituals and ceremonies once channeled and controlled. When grief can find no public outlet, it will make its own in the infection of social hysteria and the return of the blood feud. The inexplicability of mortality can, under the pressure of grief, issue in astonishingly destructive hunts for someone to blame. Grieving people are dangerous people. People incapable of grief, however, are also dangerous. Ritual and ceremony exist in part to siphon off the dangers of grief but they also exist to allow use of the remainder for public purposes. Just as the private dead can bind us something to larger than ourselves in the family, so the public dead can bind us to something even greater. The story of their suffering becomes part of our story with the same demands as though a brother or a sister had died. The cultural use of the sacrificed is an expansion into the public realm of the private relation to the dead and without well-formed, solemn, and generally accepted funeral rites from the private realm, a society's sporadic attempts at unifying itself around the public display of the newly dead will appear what those attempts typically are, artificial, arbitrary, and ineffectual. The modern failure of funerals is both a cause and a symptom of the shattering of culture into atomized individuals. We can see this rising, perhaps, in the increasing use of something called anonymous burial, particularly in Europe, where the dead are increasingly interred in unmarked graves or their corpses cremated and the ashes spread across large and indifferent spaces. In all Western cultures, a person was once gathered to his father's. But constant relocation and the contemporary distaste of urban planners for cemeteries has made care of the family graves, and thus their existence, difficult. Why should it be a surprise that the family tradition is failing at the same time as the family grave? The isolated atomized individual disappears with death into nothingness. Indeed, the logical circle closes on itself. The failure to maintain the family graves increasingly leaves the family name without meaning, and the meaningless of the family name increasingly becomes the reason not to have graves. This is not a hypothetical concern. In 1900, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to prohibit future burials within the city limits. In 1912, the board declared its additional intention to evict the city's previously existing cemeteries, and in 1914, removal notices were sent to all burial sites, declaring, that, declaring them a public nuisance and a menace and detriment to the health and welfare of city dwellers. By 1937, the board had triumphed in a long series of legal battles, and the old cemeteries were gradually built over, usually after relocation to the suburb of Colma, but sometimes not. Perhaps 11,000 bodies, for example, still lie unmarked beneath the Lincoln Park golf course, and broken pieces of headstones were used to build retaining walls and drain gutters in Buena Vista Park where fragments of their inscriptions can still be read. The only remaining exceptions to San Francisco's complete ban of the dead are a few old Catholic graves in the grotto at the Mission Dolores, the Federal Military Cemetery in the Presidio, and a columbary in the Richmond District, left after the Oddfellow Cemetery around it had been evacuated. The typical modern regime of city planners and public health officers and visionary futuristics undoubtedly played their part in the emptying of San Francisco's graves, as did the financial pressures on real estate in a narrow urban space like the Golden Gate Peninsula. For that matter, the city's leadership was merely reflecting the gradually gradually emerging conviction in the 20th century's turn against its past that the 19th century had taken funerals far too seriously. The Victorians in particular came in for a beating on this. It was the Edwardian belief that the Victorians were a sick people and their sickness was manifested in two ways, in the fact that they were obsessed with sex, and the fact that they were obsessed with death. And in the Edwardian turn against the Victorians, cemeteries are one of the things that we that in urban spaces we increasingly got rid of. What all of these people missed, it seems to me, is the organizing principle that death provides a political society. A deep political insight is present, I suggest in the misgivings we might feel about a government that decides to abolish its cemeteries and visibly reject remembrance of the dead. A city without graves has failed to do something that lies at the very root of what cities exist to do. Of course, the politics of death cuts in two directions, and the benefit of inflicting death is uncomfortably close to political theories about the necessity as social glue for people who have been killed. In his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbons saw the political force that early Christianity gained from its Roman martyrs. And in The Prince, Machiavelli warns against the martyr-forming effect of murdering one's political opponents. In his 1882 lecture, What is a Nation?, Ernst Renan seems to endorse the idea completely, arguing that the shared memory of heroic suffering is the single most defining characteristic of a nation and that in the absence of the sacrificed, there can be no nation. Where national memories are concerned, he wrote, griefs are of more value than triumphs, for they impose duties and require a common effort. And where does this deeply disturbing prospect leave the respect we want to pay, say, the young soldiers who risk their lives in war? Where does this leave, for instance, Abraham Lincoln's insistence that the brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated the Gettysburg battlefield far above our poor power to add or detract, and thus, from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion? Lincoln seems obviously right and yet political theory has never quite explained how it is that our devotion to a cause is strengthened by our grief at the death of those who fought for that cause we cannot find the answer i suggest in the absence of a greater intuition between of the relation between grief and politics than contemporary political theory seems to allow without the communion of the dead the heroism of martial self-sacrifice is irretrievably stained with slaughter, either to be denounced for its inherent bloodletting to the dangerous loss of any concept of just war or honor or glory, or even more frightening, to be extolled for the spilling of enemy blood. As presence structures being for thought, so absence structures time. It is in absent things that we find the stable, intelligible objects through which we might know time's perpetual perishing. If I had more space, I, I would try to develop a third thesis about death and in politics, involving the necessity for grief and rejecting modern psychological attempts to surmount mourning. A set of modern understandings expressed most completely by Martin Heidegger have always seemed to me completely backwards as phenomenological descriptions of the human condition. Anxiety about one's own death, I am willing to assert here without any proof at all, anxiety about one's own death is less fundamental to human experience than grief at the death of others, just as fear for our own lives is less compelling than fear for the lives of others. But even without this third piece of the puzzle fully developed, we can see the political benefits of shared dead. These are dangerous waters to stir to life again, but without them, we lack all thickness, seriousness, and purpose in our political endeavors. About all this, the communitarians had it wrong, I believe. Now, they were more right than the Rawlsians, but they never reached down to the genuine metaphysical root of politics. No successful communities ever got built because their founders were enthralled with the political usefulness of communities. We create true and organic communities only when we have dead that we share. Everything else is artificial and adventitious and temporary and false. Frighteningly, the dead we share may be those we kill instead of those who are killed. But frightening or not, it remains the human condition. Political society derives from the fact that people die, and the deepest roots of a culture are in its funerals and memorials. In the midst of life, we are in death.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bottom, for that marvelously uh, learned uh, talk. I was reminded of uh, Senator Sam Irvin. Uh, You'll excuse me, Jody. Senator Sam Irvin uh, chairing the Watergate uh, committee and beginning his interrogation of the witness, uh, uh, the Nixon witnesses, by saying, Now I'm an old country lawyer. And uh, Dr. Bottom informed us that he wasn't an intellectual and had the opportunity to read all that much, but uh, nevertheless managed to cite uh, Lucretius and uh, the peculiar uh, ending of uh, De Rerum Natura, uh, which I'm sure you've read uh, only recently yourselves. Uh, <laughs> great show. Uh, wonderful set of considerations uh, to think about. Uh, And now let's talk about them. So uh, we'll open the floor. We have a custom, Jody, in the Madison program of beginning with uh, questions from uh, uh, students, if any students either from the undergraduate program or the graduate school or the theological seminary or or anywhere else would like to uh, open the floor to questions. The talk was just so rich. There's so much to to discuss. Uh, Really, uh, any dimension of it can open us up so are there any uh, student questions Uh, yes
2: States, and we see that currently, and a lot of them talk about how Europe is very secular as compared to the United States, which still has a bit more religious focus, and I can't
1: I mean, I think you're right. As an intuition, um, it, it needn't be that way. And there's a stoic line of thought, um, Epicurean line of thought, maybe even more so, that suggests that bravery comes from a kind of, uh, you know, understanding of the basic unreality of life and death. Um, yeah, maybe more Epicurean. Uh, Swinburne. <laughs> There's a Victorian burst of Stoicism and Epicureanism, Neoplatonism, for them, all the minor schools of Roman philosophy. The Victorians rediscover them and the poets go hog wild with them. And, um, the Garden of Persephone, I think, ends Swinburne's poem um, We thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be, um, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Uh, there, so there is an idea, you know, that somehow the, it, we are to be. In fact, Lucretius embraces this openly. Um, that it's a good thing. There's no immortality; otherwise, you know, we'd have to go through this all again. Uh, and so there isn't a logical necessity for what you've described, because you can imagine an alternative way. But I think no society has ever managed to embrace this kind of Epicureanism. And in fact, uh, Virgil's Aeneid is, to some degree, Virgil starts out you know, as a student of this school of philosophy, and he's facing the grand you know, uh, example that Lucretius set before him of how to do Latin hexameters and the anxiety of influence. Um, and, and Virgil essentially sets it aside in favor of the gods uh, because he believes that, that no society can maintain this. Well, if Virgil's right, and I think you're probably right about Europe, no society can maintain that kind of thank god the river always winds somewhere to see that you know we don't have an afterlife um, there is going to be something more and more precious about one's own life right? the risk of and the price of giving it away grow higher and higher it seems odd you know to say that we live longer than any culture at any time in the history of the world and our lives are our years are more precious to us because of that rather than less I mean, it's people who are only going to live to be 25 who somehow managed to throw their lives away heroically, uh, traditionally in, in what Alistair MacIntyre would call barbaric heroic cultures. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. If you, On the other hand, you know, the Christian, I, I mentioned anonymous burials. The monasteries, the Benedictine monasteries in particular, more than the Augustinian, uh, had a kind of similar thing in which you know the brothers were buried anonymously. They were not to be remembered in their particularity, um, but just buried together to be gathered up at the end time in un- undifferentiated graves. But I think that that springs from an entirely different source of motivation than these anonymous burials in Europe and the increasing use of cremation in the United States and scattering of ashes so that there is no grave to tend. Um, These, it seems to me, are finally denials